Hi, I'm Ryan Nostrayato, and this is Donuts in the Lounge, a podcast for educators. I've worked in public schools since 2001 as a school psychologist and as an administrator, and I've met a lot of educators over the years. They all have one thing in common. They want to create the best possible experience they can for students. But the truth is, that means something different to everyone, and there are some challenges along the way. And I'll be the first to say, we don't always have the solutions, but we definitely have each other and a chance to talk about our reality. Season one of Donuts in the Lounge is focused on how we use data in schools. Many of these stories are in a book I wrote, the K-12 Educator's Data Guidebook, Reimagining Practical Data Use in Schools. And if you join my email list, you'll get a discount code for 20% off the book, plus other free resources like podcast episode summaries. These are just for my email list friends as a thank you, because you know, I've got a good thing going on over there. So sign up at ryanestrayato.com. In this episode, I got to hang out with data visualization expert, Dr. Stephanie Evergreen. All right, question for y'all in the lounge. Do you want to get good at data visualization but worry that you'll need to learn coding or things like that? Well, Stephanie doesn't want to code either. And she's done workshops and keynotes for Fortune 500 clients like MasterCard and Facebook, but also mission-aligned clients like the United Nations, the Boys and Girls Club, AARP, and the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. She's also got three books and a popular blog on data visualization. Plus, wait until you hear her favorite donut and coffee order. Total surprise. All right, so grab a coffee and your favorite donut, and let's go deep on data visualization and Stephanie's trademark style. Authentic, practical, funny, and social justice-minded. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Stephanie Evergreen, how are you? I'm so good. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on Donuts in the Lounge. I'm excited. Uh, yeah, I think this is the funnest named podcast I've ever been on. So I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you for saying that. That 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 means a lot. Given that that is the name, we've got all kinds of stuff that I can't wait to talk about. But given that the name is Donuts in the Lounge, I have to ask: Do you have a favorite donut? Yeah, so this is a hot topic where I live in Kalamazoo. We have like the, some of the world's best donut places here. Uh, one of our donut places is called Sweetwaters, and you'll have to, we should link to this in the show notes yes. because I'm Taking telling you, right now. The, the donuts are amazing. You can get them with like, they'll put like Reese's peanut butter cups and like, I mean, it's a whole accoutrement style of donuting. Um, but at my heart, I just want a chocolate glazed donut. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's all I need. And like half of it, because if I eat the whole thing, I start to feel really weird. <laughs> yeah, that's so I've asked, I think maybe you are the, f- maybe the fourth or fifth person that I've asked that question. And so far people tend to, I don't know why this is, people tend to gravitate towards the simpler things, despite, mm. you know, the availability of really uh, interesting, you know, kind of, don't, I don't know, there's something that's comforting about like the basic you know, a lot of folks are just like the basic glaze. It's like, that's just, you can't beat that. Yeah, it's true. You can't beat classics. And that's the stuff that we grew up on. So I think we find those to be our comfort oh, foods. Yeah, totally. But, you know, I so I would love to see a study on the children of Kalamazoo who grew up with Sweetwaters <laughs> at their disposal, who are eating these donuts that are like a foot tall. And, you know, what they think when they're my age. <laughs> okay, you heard it here first. Uh, research funding for this. Very, very, I would be very interesting and uh, interested in that, uh, in that finding. Do you have coffee with your donut? Are you a coffee? person i I have to have coffee yeah without a doubt yeah uh you have a 
coffee drink that you like in particular? Are you a black coffee type of person? Or? So I, um, we are a coffee snob household over here. Same. Um, so my, my coffee right now these days is half calf. I know that makes me feel and sound old. <laughs> when I was in my twenties, I would go to the coffee shop and just down cup after cup after cup yeah. and then go to sleep. Like, I don't know how I ever did that, but right. now if I have a full cup of coffee, I'm in trouble. Yeah. Um, so half-calf over here, and I'm currently using the inverted AeroPress technique mm. to brew it, and then it's pure black. Oh, you are a coffee snob. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> that, I mean, I know what that is. I, I, I totally know what that is. Uh, I haven't used our AeroPress in a long time. Uh, what do you find the? Uh, what do you find you get out of the inverted? Okay, so for the listeners, the AeroPress, you just have to Google it. I don't even know how to explain it. It's a one cup, very fancy way of making coffee usually just for one cup uh, it's fun to use uh, and fans of the AeroPress have adopted a I think this is kind of like a uh, what do you call it when you use um, like prescribed medicines for a different purpose it's, off- <laughs> it's like an off market off market yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think this is advertised by like AeroPress to do it this way but 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 fans of the AeroPress some people choose to to use this, the inverted method. Do you want to explain like what that is and what you think you get out of that? Yeah. So the, with the typical AeroPress or any other coffee, um, making that you can think of, it's, you got the coffee sitting on top of a filter, usually a paper filter. And as soon as you put the water in it, that it's going to start with the water is going to start coming through the filter. And that initial coffee that comes through is going to be fairly weak because it hasn't had a lot of time to marry with the beans or the, the grounds. Right. So with the inverted technique, you um, you make the coffee and the water, blend them together, and you let them sit for two minutes before you press it through the filter so that you're getting like a, a stronger flavor. And I don't even feel like it's like strong coffee where yeah. like I'm going to go lift a building. It's yeah. just like a really flavorful coffee. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what you get from the inverted technique. There's a whole YouTube, there's many YouTube videos on how to do it, and we should link to that. Yeah, so I am too. definitely go- going to do that. Um, yeah, I'm going to do that. I think at one point I got onto this rabbit hole of uh, AeroPress competitions. Have you seen? Oh, like, really? Yeah, people no. are. Very, I, I don't know how they evaluate like who wins, but yeah, I watched that for a little bit. It was it was pretty interesting. Okay, good. Um, yeah, good good stuff. I, I will link I will link to that for sure. Um, okay. So, um, you are, okay. There's so much that we just, yeah, you have accomplished that, that I, I want to cover today. You're an internationally recognized speaker, you're a designer, a researcher, so many other things, but there, there's something that I, I'm not sure if people know about you, which is that you were once like early in your career, you were once a teacher. And uh-huh. I, I'm so curious about, um, what Dr. Stephanie Evergreen, the teacher was like. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really good question. My, my uh, bachelor's degree was in early childhood. We actually had the kind of degree that was a combined minor because as an elementary teacher, you have to know so many things, right? So I didn't have, I guess my major would have been elementary, but I had then specialties in early childhood, urban education, math, and science, I believe. Um, you just, you know, you know how it is. You got to know everything. Yep. So my specialty was early childhood. I love those little kids just like 
their first steps into the classroom and how fun that is. And like at that age, they still think you're a pretty princess. And like, you know, by middle school, they kind of hate you a little bit. So like, I just can't, you know, I'm third grade max for me. And then I'm like, nope, you're somebody else's problem. (laughs) So I love that age. I think it's super fun. So my specialty then, and that's still kind of what I do now is um, setting up environments for success. Like, where you're, you've got the systems in place so that people know what to do and there isn't all this chaos and confusion. And I think that's stuff that I, you know, I still incorporate into like my household and my life right now, like setting up the environment so that it cues you about what to do. Um, classroom management was a really big thing for me and I wanted to do it in a way that was super chill and calm. So um, I don't know. I always found like flicking the lights to be really aggressive. Like, yes, it works, but it's just like, geez, what's happening in here? Yeah, right. Now? right. So, so my classroom had like chimes that I would ring when I needed people's attention. Like, it was just so calm. And we focused a lot on relationships and making friends. Um, and I personally let kids. I maybe give a lot of freedom, maybe more freedom than other people would. But I feel like if you know the parameters of what's okay, what's not okay, we have the environment set up for this. Let's have a dance party in the middle of the day. Like let's, let's do, let's, I call it controlled chaos. Like I am absolutely fine with um, the classroom maybe getting a little loud sometimes or whatever. Like we all know what the boundaries are. We all know that when the chimes ring, you're going to be quiet again. And as right. long as we can all agree to that, I don't, you know, like let's, let's have fun. Yeah. Um, I also always focused on the kid who was left out. And I think, you know, a lot of teachers are like that because we were the kids who were left out. Um, but that kid in the corner, who's just not quite interacting, doesn't know how to make a friend or, you know, kids who had, cause you're seeing them first thing. So you, you'll see undiagnosed learning disabilities in a preschool kindergarten classroom that they, that no one even knows exists yet. And so figuring out interventions for those kids um, before they can go get special ed help. That was my specialty. I love stuff like that. And that mother who stops me like five years later as I'm walking down the sidewalk and was like, you made a difference. Yeah. Caleb loves school. He didn't love school. He loved school after he saw you. Like that's the stuff. So you rewarding. live on that the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, totally. It is so good. Yeah. What's an example um, of like a version of your uh, controlled chaos that you have in your home? Mm, um, so I'm a pretty uh, lenient parent. My kid, we don't really have a lot of restrictions. Um, like he can watch, he's 16 now. So I mean, like how do you even control a 16 year old anyway? Okay. I know when my parents tried to control me at that age, I just did whatever the hell I wanted, you yeah, know? Exactly. So I'm just like, I'm more, I'm more accepting of that fact. So I, he's got a long, I don't like saying people are unleashes. He's got a long leash from me though. Like he can do whatever. And that's the thing. He doesn't get into any trouble. Yeah. Okay. I'm, a, I'm saying that as a parent. I know <laughs> listeners are like, yeah, you just don't know about it. But <laughs> that's what I was thinking. But I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> but seriously, I'm like, you need to go mess around with your friends. Yep. You know, like go, go out, go out there and involve yourself in some shenanigans of some mm-hmm. kind, something wholesome, please. But still, yes. Um, I think those experiences are very formative for us. So yep. I support, I support it. Um, yeah. So I don't restrict what he watches. I don't restrict how much screen time he has. I tell him what I would do and I, you know, hope he'll make good choices, but I guess, yeah, that would be my example of some controlled chaos in the parenting level. Now, at some point uh, in your teaching career, you decided it was time to, to do something different. Uh, that's when you decided to get your, your PhD, I think, right? 
When was the moment that you realized, huh, I think uh, maybe there's something, there might be something else out there for me to explore? Yeah. So it was when in my PhD program, we did a lot of research projects and um, they were interdisciplinary. So I was working in all kinds of different industries, but I still had my, my hands in education projects at the time. And I would uh, find myself making the reports for them. Like, here's the survey of the teachers and like making all these graphs. And it was terrible. I hated it. It was so boring writing those reports. The graphs were ugly. Like it just, it wasn't resonating with me. And I'm the one that was most invested in the data because I had collected it, right? So if it doesn't work for me, it's not going to work for anybody else. And so that's when I thought, we've got to change the way that we talk about our data. And at the time, it was before data visualization was a field. There wasn't even a name for it back then. Um, So I just kind of had to make things up and pull from what I could see in other spaces, like graphic design and that kind of thing, applying it in new ways. Um, And once I started to get the hang of that, I was like, yeah, this is the way we have to go. Yeah, I'm wondering um, how much of... This is getting a little abstract, but there might be something fun to talk about here, which is the whole theme that you experienced as a preschool teacher about giving kids the freedom to be able to explore and experience things. Do you feel like the spirit of that, it maybe even in some unconscious way, went into how you think about data visualization and how the consumer interacts with it? I totally think there are linkages there. Absolutely. And one of the things that uh, I think makes my version of DataViz work is also tied to what made my classrooms work. And and I think that kind of all teachers, all people in education share the same uh, characteristic as me, where we want stuff that's practical. I like theory, don't get me wrong, but like it needs to change my classroom today. Like I, what can I actually do right now that's going to help? And so that uh, focused on, practicality has definitely informed the way that I think we should be communicating our data, make this useful for people, make it easy for people. Let's reduce some barriers to access. And and then we can trust that people are smart and genuine and whole, and they're going to read our data and they're going to use it well for the things we want them to do. Why do you, why do you think data okay i think we can all agree that data visualization needs that and we can all agree that your approach to the to doing that is so effective and fun and authentic one thing that keeps on nagging at me is what is it about data visualization as a field or maybe data analysis as a field in general that wants to not be like that <laughs> like what like do you know what i'm saying like yeah. like what why why is why why is the natural evolution of data visualization kind of inching towards a a thing that is just harder to understand that then requires somebody in the field like you to kind of unpack that and and sort of redo it what why is that the trajectory So let me ask you a question. Do you have an example in mind that you're thinking of when you say that? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say, uh, I have a lot of friends who are policy experts and research experts. And so I, so I, I am not an, uh, I love their work, admire them very much. And also when I read research articles, um, 
it takes a little while for me to unpack what's happening there in the data analysis. Um, I can do it. I've got pretty decent training and experience to, to do that. And even for me, sometimes it's like, oh, I have to stare at this for a little while and understand <laughs> what this access is, you know, and, and mm-hmm. what, what the actual, like, uh, you know, the annotations mean and everything. It's just not mm-hmm. immediately clear. That, that's, that's been my experience with that kind of writing Mm -hmm. and depiction of data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I think part of the reason that we're often in that situation is because the people who are writing those aren't, first of all, they're not trained. They haven't like taken my workshop, you know, come take my workshop. We'll sort this all out. Um, (laughs) Another thing though, I think is that we're fighting against a culture that has taught us that's acceptable. It's not acceptable. We just don't know that there is an alternative that's out there. So part of it, I think is just exposure um, but I also think part of it is that we're often, as graph makers, not thinking about our audience. Hmm. If we were trying to put ourselves in our audience's shoes, we would go, oh, you know what? If I was on the outside, this would seem really complicated. And I'm probably not explaining this as clearly as I could. We would make some different decisions. Yeah. And we would articulate our points better if we were really thinking about our audience. But we're really not. Or we're thinking about the audience is other people just like me who already know everything that I know and not anybody outside of that group. And that just limits us significantly in how much people are going to be able to connect with what we're saying. That's why I always say that journals are where data goes to die because you're only talking to people just like you, other researchers who just want to research, like not actually do something with the data to change the world. I relate to this so much, um, just even in my writing, like it was a big lesson for me um, when, you know, I I would write and then I would show it to people and people would be like, I don't really understand what this is. And my reaction would would be like, why don't... Why don't you understand my art? Like I don't like how do, how do you not understand? And like and that would be you know the, a less mature version of me. And then um, you know I read in several places. I think I think I read you know one in particular that sticks out to me is I think the author Austin Cleon said this in an interview. Like it's a major realization you know as a writer when you realize that you that unless you're writing in your personal journal you are writing for somebody like they, and it is for them. It is not for you. And so from that point of view, there has to be some effort invested in creating something that actually helps people. And, and not, mm. regardless of whether or not it's the thing that you would want to read or, you, mm-hmm. you know, or it's just, that's something to think about. It's a little silly. Like I feel kind of embarrassed just say, saying it out loud that that's a thing that I missed. But it kind of sounds like there's an analogy there with what you experienced with DataViz. Completely. And I, when I write, it took me a while to figure out this trick. But when I write, I start my, I mentally start my sentence with the person's name oh. that I am writing for. So I'll start with Rye and I'll act like we're having a casual conversation like this. And then I will um, finish the sentence. And that's what helps me write in a way that is always keeping my audience in mind and also making the language really accessible. I think another layer of this that we probably haven't touched on is how much we feel like we need to wrap ourselves in our um and our knowledge and our academic training and our scholarly language so that we seem like we're smart. And I think that's just some basic imposter syndrome stuff that we're all, that we all struggle with where we need to prove how smart we are. Um, But I think everybody who teaches knows that it's a real skill to make something 
easy. And that is what we're doing when we're writing and when we're making graphs and when we're teaching. And so it looks easy. So it seems like this shouldn't be too hard or some people might even look at it and say it's not sophisticated enough because it's so easy, but ease is what makes it accessible and ease is what makes it useful. Oh gosh. I, I, I really, I, I really love that. And it reminds me so much of the feelings that I would have when I would write in a way that was accessible to a wider audience. Um, I remember feeling like, thankfully, you know, I've said, I think I've overcome this, but I remember feeling some fear that if I write this way, then I can't telegraph my credibility. Another Mm -hmm. sort of thing, embarrassing thing to sort of admit to, but I think that that was like a real thing that I experienced that was a barrier for me to, to get to the other side of like, oh no, this is actually, now I'm actually communicating with people (laughs) once Mm -hmm. I got over that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot, so much about that, you know, resonates with me. Um, Okay. So I want to turn to K-12 education and um, I want to know if you, so, so many ways that we could approach data and data viz and and K-12 education, but I want to know like, what you if you could solve any problem in K twelve ed in the way that we use data or in the way that we use data viz in particular, what would that be? Yeah, so my biggest challenge whenever I'm working with education folks and trying to make good graphs for them is that the data is all over the place, and and so it, it would make my life easier, and I believe everyone in education's life easier if all data was housed in like one central location. And I see this, it doesn't matter what school district I am working with, the data is in a hundred different spots. Yep. You've got something that's in like the assessment system. You've got something that's in some kind of school built system. You're keeping your own spreadsheet or you're tracking something somewhere. And like the next consultant comes in and they got a new portal you have to log into. And it's just like endless portals. Okay. I am so sick of endless (laughs) portals with all these different passwords and like and then, then what? Some teacher is going to spend their in what little free time they have downloading spreadsheets from different portals to try to pull it together and right. tell a story about their classroom. It's nonsense. Yep. So I want all data in one place, and I think it should be a rule that if someone is coming in from the outside, whether it's an assessment or whether it's a consultant, you have to conform to the school's database. Yeah. Your stuff has to fit into the school's database so that people only have a one-stop shop to access their data. And that's what I would want as a consultant. Give me one spot that I can go in and and graph your data for you, yeah. you know? That would be it. Uh, yeah, I think you that that is definitely a thing. Dur- during my my day job, I, I work on building and maintaining data tools and stuff like that. And um, educators say that all the time. Like these are mm-hmm. just like why can't it all be in one place? Like and yeah, so mm-hmm. that's definitely speaking to uh, you know to to the educators there. Um, so you gave me some. We, we uh, had talked when I was writing my book, the K twelve Educators Data Guidebook, and and um, and you were gracious enough to, to spend some time and, and share with me. And you gave me some advice um, that uh, that I want to bring up here and just talk about a little bit more. You said there's a lot about the story structure that can change people's minds. It's data and stories together that change people. You need both. And I want to know why uh, why you feel like we need both data and the story, um, and what happens if we've maybe got just data or just the story. 
Mm, yeah. So it's a really crude way to frame this, but if you think about it, uh, we need to reach the head and the heart. Now that doesn't exactly align to what I'm talking about here, data and stories, but um, but for a crude way of thinking about it, we have to we have to hit both things in order for change inside of a person to really occur. Um, and so, and we've seen lots of research around this, and it comes from many different fields. So some of the early research I looked at in this area was around courtrooms and how lawyers persuade jurors or judges to make decisions and to, um, to, to cast their lot with them. And a lot of it comes down to this idea of stories plus data. We need the data to tell us, like to validate that, yes, this thing exists. I guess there is a pattern in here, but the stories are where we get the emotional connection. Graphs can give you an emotional connection. It's just a lot harder. Like we don't really empathize with a graph <laughs> and the way that we do with an actual person telling us their story. And if it's just stories, then it's very easy to be like, well, that's anecdotal. That was just your one experience, right? right? We want to see the pattern in the data that says this isn't a one-off thing. This is something that's really consistent. So um, courtroom research has shown us for a long time that we need data and stories together to, to really provide more solid proof. And I'm using the word proof really loosely. Um, but I think we've seen some of that happening um, in more recent research around like climate change. So uh, we, I mean, we've had graphs around climate change. We have the numbers around climate change we have for a long time. So if numbers were enough, we wouldn't be in this problem right now. So true. You know, so the, we have some obstacles with convincing some people to make some changes. And we do see stories make an impact here. I'll tell you about one of the research studies that I, that I read my details are going to be a little sketchy because I'm really pulling this out of my memory bank. But I believe it was Harvard. They've got a climate change like news podcast. They do like a story a day that gets syndicated out, you know, all over the place. And um, one of the stories that they had was from a sportsman who was in like North Carolina telling the story about how climate change has impacted like his favorite fishing holes and hunting grounds or whatever. Um, that that does not connect to me because I'm not a hunter, but it really connected with the people who hunt. And those people have uh, values that overlap with the folks who haven't cared about climate change up to this point. So the Harvard actually surveyed the audience members um, in two different studies after this story had aired, and they showed that they that the biggest, emotional changes were happening in people who called themselves moderates and conservatives. Hmm. And, and those are the folks I think who have traditionally been the most resistant to the idea that climate change is even a real thing. And the studies were showing that it was compassion and empathy that was making them actually move. And I, those, those to me seem to be the missing pieces that, we don't get out of a graph. Yeah, I think that's that's so real. I, you know, it's funny. I uh, am firmly in the uh, data and story camp now. Also, as I, I mean, I, I I trade in stories for a living. Um, but I need for you to talk to like a younger version of me who was just a data person, and 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 like probably as you know, as recent as maybe five or six years ago, as I was exploring storytelling as an art form and a way to communicate, my feeling was that it was manipulative. Like I, you know, that it was, it should just be like the data should be able to speak for itself. Obviously I don't think that now, but like, um, <laughs> but if, 
uh, you ran into me and we had a conversation over coffee and I was looking for help trying to make sense of that. How would, how would you persuade me to like explore it further? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So many places to take that. So one thing I might say would be about how data is all in some ways manipulative, too. Like you can't make a graph that doesn't contain some bias Mm -hmm. in it. Right. The decisions that you make in your graph about like what the scale will be or what comparison points you're going to use will all tell a story. I was just just talking to a group of folks that are in um, early childhood who were trying to tell a story about how things are working really well in their system. So then they were like, I said, well, we'll need some comparison points to really make that clear that you're great. What could we compare to? And so then they start cherry picking like, well, this neighboring district uh, is really bad. So let's use them. And it's like, those are the decisions that can, can it's all biased, yeah. right? It's all biased. Our, all of our choices are going to reflect decisions. And that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Um, even the most quote unquote objective graph is still going to have some bias in it. So if we know that everything is manipulation, maybe we can think of a less harsh word. Yeah. <laughs> because when we, when we hear manipulation, I think we think liars. That's right. Um, I think we could maybe come up with a gentler term for that. Even bias has such a negative connotation yeah. to it. It's all editorial. Maybe we can say it that way. Yeah. We're it, all editing in some way. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's like they're both, they are both versions of, you know, it's, it's almost, it's almost like the trade-off for communicating something complicated to a lot of people is that it's an inevitability that it gets simplified or oversimplified, right? Beyond the natural complexity of the thing you're trying to describe. It's how somebody like me can even begin to grasp the complexity of like climate change, like you brought up earlier, you know, maybe to your point, bias isn't the right word. Maybe it's just a thing that comes with, we're trying to help each other understand. Right. And there's only a handful of people who can sort of look at the complexity and sort of see and grasp all of that. The rest of us, you know, if that is not our area of expertise, the rest of us, you know, have to approach it from a, maybe a slightly more abstracted point of, you know, point of view, but, but what we get for that slight simplification is like, oh, I actually kind of understand this now. And, mm, um, mm. and that just and when can't people, come Yes. And when people feel like they understand it, they'll keep coming with you. Right. So you can start with something simple. It's, it's hard for anybody to look at a really complex picture at first glance and consume the whole thing. But if, if that means our gateway drug has to be a bar chart just so that you can come with me further and I can talk to you about more complex topics, then so be it. You yeah. know, everybody's on a different journey. So some people's entry points are going to be a bar chart and some people's entry points are going to be a story about a sportsman in North Carolina. Yep. I love that. Um, I read an interview uh, that you did and you shared some advice in the interview that I thought was really interesting. Um, they asked you about uh, data visualization tools, like your favorite tools and how you think about tools. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. said, Pencil and paper first. Sketching out ideas is where you work out logical errors. Uh, And I think that Mm -hmm. educators may not have the time or may in some cases the interest to use um, tools that I enjoy like coding or even, you know, spreadsheets or something like that. Um, And so I wanted to hear more about uh, about what you see is the power of something as as simple and timeless as just a pencil and paper. 
I know. Yeah. Well, I'm in that camp too. I don't ever want to code. I am really hoping crossing my fingers. I can make it to retirement without having to learn how to code. (laughs) I just do not ever want to have to do it. So I don't have the interest and I don't have the time. A younger me might've felt like that was something that I had to learn, but please, please spare me. So um, but that stuff is is important and it's valuable out there. It's just not going to be what I want to do. So my take is always, if you can draw it, we can make it. And the we doesn't have to mean you. It can mean that the programmer down the hall makes it or that the consultant that we hire makes it. Um, but those people won't know exactly what to do without at least some sketch from you first. Like the people who are closest to the data, the people who are closest to the kids who are on the ground seeing it every single day are the ones in the best position to paint that initial picture. And then the graphic designer can do whatever they need to do in Illustrator or InDesign or whatever, program till the cows come home. But But those people aren't closest to the situation. So putting all the storytelling power into their hands is gonna guarantee that what comes out doesn't really match the reality very well. Um, so I say sketch, sketch, and then hand it over to somebody else so they can do it. But even beyond like using it for that reason, sketching is like writing things out on pencil and paper. That is like our ancestral heritage in so many ways, you know, that's our original explanation tool. And teachers have been doing it forever on chalkboards when I was a kid or whiteboards when I was a teacher, or now they're doing it digitally on their tablets Mm -hmm. and everything. But we are still using sketches as an explanation tool to walk people through things step by step. So I think it's just part of our our core skill set. Like I remember having to annotate report cards for parents because God knows the charts that they spit out are complete nonsense or walking through standardized test scores and trying to explain what all the different data points mean. So I would take my pencil and I would circle data points and I would write notes in there so that people could read it later. And I mean, that's, that's exactly what we have to do. So if, if we just like let the teachers sketch what a really good report card graph should look like in the first place, then we wouldn't have to do all the extra work inside all of our meetings, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so interesting because I do write a lot of code and even for me, nothing beats the immediacy of like a pen and a piece of paper. I mean, I'll, I'll even, you know, if I've got a big messy data set that I have to write code to, to unpack and organize, I, I, I'll sketch out like what I need that table to look like um, mm-hmm. at, at the end of, you know, the, the process, because I, it's too hard for me to hold it in my head. Um, and sometimes mm-hmm. I can't even, it doesn't even become clear until I actually get it out onto a piece of paper. And there's something that just feels immediate about that and, and, uh, and useful not to mention, yeah. uh, I talked to, to, uh, in the last episode of this podcast, a teacher named Megan, and she uses this term overhead that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, and I think she uses it from the point of view of how much time and energy do you have to invest to get to like the point where you mm. are getting value and there's like zero overhead with a pen and paper. Like the whole mm-hmm. term, phrase back of the napkin is like one of my favorite phrases because it means so much. Like literally it could be, you know, a napkin, you know, you're at a bar somewhere or something, got a napkin and a pen. But metaphorically, it's this idea of like, just get it out of your head onto something. And, mm-hmm. um, and I really love that. I just think that's, that's so cool. Yeah, it's a clarifying process yeah. too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, okay, if I were a brand new teacher and I was looking for advice on how to use data practically, like if, if I just said, listen, I'm just I'm new to this. I just graduated. I'm, I'm starting, you know, in second grade. Uh, principal says I have to do data driven decision making. And I'm not sure mm. what that means. What would you tell mm. me? Yeah. So let's fight the endless portals and <laughs> <laughs> and figure out how to cut through it. So what I recommend is starting with your questions. Like, what are the big burning questions you have about what's happening in your students or in your classroom? And come up with like your top three. And then from there, you can figure out what data points are going to be available to me in one of these portals that will help me answer this particular question. I think when we get beyond three questions, things can start, it can start to feel a little hard to manage. Um, People do it all the time, but I think starting with three, especially if you're new, is the place to go. Another way to think about it, if you don't know what your burning questions would be, is what would your parents want to know? Mm. What would your admin want to know? Those questions might be the same as yours. They might not be the same as yours, but they're questions that you're going to get. So I start with the questions, and then you can look at what data will get you close to it. Oftentimes, what we find is that we can't really exactly answer the question like we ask questions like, how are my students doing in English? But that's a really loaded question. Yeah. Because like what, in what sense are we talking about it? Are we talking strictly about academic achievement? Are we, if we're talking about academic achievement, are we talking about standardized tests? Are we talking about classroom assessments? Are we talking about something else? Or are we talking not about academic achievement at all, but about like their happiness in English? Yep. It's completely different. So once we get to the core of the questions, like the really good, solid questions, then we can start looking for evidence that will get us closer. So let's just say it was happiness and education. How the hell are you going to measure that? I'm so sorry. Can I swear in this yes, podcast? Yes, no, please I just do. Did. Okay. Okay. Uh, should I ask first? Um, <laughs> but if you're wondering about how your kids are doing on happiness in your English classroom, what data is available to tell you the answer to that? Maybe there's a culture climate survey sitting around somewhere. It probably isn't going to say, are you happy in English? Like you're going to have to look for proxy measures in the data that exists that will get you as close as possible to answering your question or develop some tools that will answer it more specifically for you. That's a kind of a lot to ask of a new teacher. But I think finding the proxy indicators that will get you close to your answers is going to be the way to go. And then you're really only monitoring like a few data points yep. to keep you informed about what's happening in your class. Say more about that term. That might not, that may not be a term that's familiar to, uh, to all the listeners, proxy indicator. Say more about that. Yeah, a proxy indicator is something that's going to be close, but not exact. Yeah. So if I want to know about happiness, if my kids are happy in my English class and the culture and climate survey says something like, let me think of what a good question would be on there. Like, do you feel welcome mm. in your English class? Like, that's not exactly happiness, but it might be the closest thing you can find. Right. So it's going to be approximate. Yep. So a proxy indicator. Yeah. 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 Good tool. Yeah. In 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 lieu of the uh, you know the happiness meter that we all have mounted in our classrooms, we <laughs> we, we we have to have some some other reasonable thing. Um, okay. So I want to turn, I want to turn towards a very interesting project that you've started fairly recently. Um, it's called boost and bloom. And, uh, I just think I'm so fascinated with this and, uh, and really enjoy the newsletters that you send out, um, to folks. 
um, surrounding this project. And I wanted to uh, to give you a chance to just talk about more uh, more about what that is. What is Boost and Bloom? Yeah, I love that you brought it up. So it's an online course that I started on how to become a really successful entrepreneur. And I started it because people look at me and my success all the time and go, how do I do what you did? And for the longest time, I was like, I'm not telling you. Why would I tell you? That sounds like a really bad idea. (laughs) Um, But I finally got like confident enough in myself and my career that I felt like I could share what I know and how it, how it works. Um, And so I started this course that people can enroll in. I think enrollment opens in like February Mm -hmm. um, that teaches people how to, uh, how to start their own business and make it really, really work. And it addresses things that people are usually really scared about, like marketing and talking about yourself and and self-promotion, which we are going to have to do. Um, But I feel like a lot of people in education and maybe I shouldn't be saying this on your podcast, but I am hearing a lot of murmurs in the education field about people who are just sick of it, who are tired of being beat up by all society and getting paid, you know, a pittance for dealing with everything that they've had to deal with for the last, not just two years, but like a really long time. I mean, education is a sector that gets the most crap from everybody. And gets paid the least. You'd at least think those things would be right. in relation to each other. But they it's the worst not. of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So I feel like I see a lot of education folks who are like, well, I have really good skills. I can explain anything yes. to anybody. So let me go put that into practice elsewhere. It is a very transferable skill. So I see a lot of folks there who are thinking about entrepreneurship. It's also a place where entrepreneurship is where you have to do a lot like you are, you are the marketer, you are the website builder. Right. <laughs> and in addition to being the one who is actually delivering the service and people in education are really good at wearing lots of hats and spinning lots of plates in there at the same time. So that sort of thing doesn't intimidate them. Um, yeah. So Boost and Bloom teaches people all the things you need to be thinking about, all those plates you need to get spinning in there to make it work. I, um, spend a decent amount of time on social media um, following educators and interacting with them. And one of the things I noticed right away when I got more active on Instagram is just how many teachers and other educators had other things that they were doing. They were Mm -hmm. making Mm -hmm. resources or there's even, you know, a couple who are doing comedy Um, It's unclear to me if they're looking to leave education, and I almost don't think that matters to to me in particular. What I was really interested in is these are really creative folks. There's something inherently creative in education. Um, And uh, I think one of the things that Boos and Bloom does, in addition to just teaching really practical lessons, is there's just there's a basic sort of permission there to explore Mm -hmm. that. You know, whether or not somebody leaves education, you know, to pursue something else is that's just a decision, you know, everybody has to make on their own. But I love that regardless of that, just having an environment where it's like, look, you got something else in you and it's okay for that to come out. I really admire that. And I just, um, I think it's great that you're, you're creating a place, you know, this this space where people can, can explore that. Um, now I understand, I had heard that you got this idea for Boos and Bloom while on vacation. Is that true? And if so, how did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this is the thing. This is why you'll have to get away from work sometimes, right? Even if it means that you're doing comedy on the side or whatever, like, 
in that space where your brain is being consumed by the giant to-do list of work, mm -hmm. uh, that's when new ideas flood in. So yeah, we were on a, it was a COVID trip. So it was purely car ride. Mm -hmm. Um, but we went over to Lake Erie and, um, I had just before the trip, I had participated in an online course that was supposed to help women entrepreneurs. And it was an extremely expensive course. We were talking five figures. Right. And I did not get anything out of it. It was not, it was not really for people like me. I'm sure it works for some folks, but it wasn't for me. And I was, I was still just kind of mad yeah. that I had blown that amount of money on something that didn't really help. So, but I was trying to get over it when I was on vacation. And then I wake up at like two or three in the morning and I'm like, I got to make my own course. Yes. Well, that's just the answer. Like I got to do this better than they did it. And I couldn't get back to sleep. But thankfully, the Airbnb we were in was sort of suited for young children because there were brightly colored uh, note cards, yeah. all of the fluorescent note cards and pens and whatever everywhere. So I get up and I like map out the whole course. And by the time everybody else was up for breakfast, I was like, well, I started another business. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I love that. And I don't think it's a coincidence that an environment that is good for children is also good for like creating great ideas mm -hmm. like that. You know, it is just like mm -hmm. this return to a childlike curiosity for problem solving or just imagination. I, I think that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, all right, Stephanie, I think this is a pretty good place to, uh, to wrap up. But before we do, um, I have a question that I've started to ask guests because I'm very interested in the creative lives of, of people. And, and that question is, what is a hobby that you do outside of your job that helps you in your job? Um, and uh, if, if you don't have one, then what's one that you want to start? Yeah, I know. It's so hard um, when you run your own business, like it can consume so much of your life. But um, I will say, I don't know that this is a hobby so much as it's forced upon me. Okay. Cause I think hobbies are supposed to be elective. So to be fun. Yeah. Is, yeah. Okay. But this one, I don't know. Um, so we are, uh, finally going to have our wedding reception. My partner and I ended up getting married during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had planned on the date. We just couldn't gather people together. Yeah. So we had them zoom in and we got married. Uh, and we're finally having the reception this fall in a barn that is on my husband's family's farm property uh -huh. out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but the barn has been used for a hundred years, like holds cows and sheep. Yeah. And there is a layer of hay and manure <laughs> that is like three inches deep oh my on every surface in this entire barn. It had tractors in it. I mean, it had, okay. And we had to turn it from that into something that you could eat off of yeah. confidently. Right. Yeah. And it has meant replacing uh, we just we've had to do so much yeah. work to that but there is something about seeing this vision of the party and everybody dancing and having so much fun and no one falling through the floor or breaking their ankle mm -hmm. or anything like that seeing that finished product and then not getting overwhelmed by the distance between now and the finished product and being able to break it down into small steps that will get you there. And I think educators are really good at doing that. You mm -hmm. see this big objective that you have to teach and you can create the step-by-step -step that's going to get everybody there. Um, and I think that's the skill that not everybody has. Most people would just get intimidated by the whole thing. 
Well, first, congratulations. I had no idea they got married in like within the last couple of years. So congratulations. That is amazing. Uh, Thank you. And second, you know, it's funny. We've through this conversation, we've talked about three things that maybe feel separate, but I just don't think they are in terms of the way you approach all of your stuff, like the way you taught and the way you built your business, the way you pursued data viz and then also the barn you know this idea of like you've got an imagination and you and and you know what the experience is like building it and i just think that's really admirable and i i can't wait to see what you do next i think um very very exciting stuff awesome Uh, thank you you're welcome i uh i want to make sure um because you've got so much to share that we uh we have a chance to uh for you to share where people can find your work online yeah good question okay so if you're interested in data viz i have a newsletter uh it's on hiatus for the summer i don't know when this podcast is going to come out but we'll be picking up again in september so we'll include the link for that if you're interested in entrepreneurship and the boost and bloom course i've got a newsletter for that too so we can include the link for that Mm -hmm. And then otherwise, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Instagram is the place where I will definitely be talking about entrepreneurship and data viz, but I also post updates about the barn. So yeah. you can see <laughs> <laughs> so you can see the, the progress as it happens, um, for better or for worse. Uh, so I hope that you'll be able to catch me in one of those places. The Instagram, your Instagram posts are really great. Like, it's one of my favorite follows. We didn't get to talk about this Um uh, on the show, but like I was following, I was so surprised at how like closely I was following your Europe trip, like just the stuff that you were oh. sharing on, you know, like the jacket and the, I won't spoil it for everybody. They'll just have to follow you and check it out. But there was ice cream and swimming and so, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I try not to be one of those people who has to like take pictures of my food all the time. Right. Not like that. But right. I do think you have to know, like, if I go to Amsterdam, like, I, I got to get ice cream. Yeah. Down. Like, you know, you just want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time. I had so much fun doing this. I can't wait to get this edited and share it with everybody and to share your work. And um, I'm just, I'm so excited and, and admire everything that you do. So thank you so much for, for doing this. Oh, gosh. Thank you very much for having me on here. It's been a total blast. All right. You're welcome. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay. Cool. Bye-bye.